0: This edition of the Northern Miner Podcast is sponsored by Mine Expo International, the world's largest mining trade show. See thousands of new products and services at the Las Vegas Convention Center from September 28th to 30th. Registration is now open, so visit mineexpo.com to register. You don't want to miss this opportunity. And welcome to episode number 180 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm your host and online editor, and I also help out with social media. A little help from Maladin at times in marketing. So we tip our hat to Maladin right now and deserve some recognition here, who is one of the hardest working men at the Northern Miner. So, um, yeah, and what a time we're in. It's a story that won't go away. It's PDAC and their coronavirus cases. And yeah, they have now confirmed that there are three confirmed cases of people with coronavirus that were at the PDAC convention. It has been dripping out here over the last couple of weeks. We have a great story on that by our acting editor-in-chief and senior reporter, Trish Saywell, who really did an outstanding job on this story. And it's a Northern Miner exclusive. So we're going to get into that. Our feature content this episode is Joe Ofsenek, and he is the president and CEO of Predium Resources, and he gave the third keynote at the PDAC convention, and so... We're going to take a look at that. I'm a little skeptical, frankly. He never addressed many of the issues that Predium is facing. They just revised their production for next year, their production outlook. He glossed over the big controversy from 2012. If I was a big investor in Predium and I had gone to go hear Joe Ofsenek talk, I'd kind of want to hear about those things as I may or may not be losing money on that situation. And there he's just really saying how great the Bruce Jack mine is. So... (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I mean, maybe the reason he's invited is because Bruce Jack is such a fantastic mind. So why go into these things that he doesn't want to talk about? But I think transparency rules the day. And I think if there are issues, you gain credibility by addressing them, not by glossing over them. So just my editorial on that. You tell me what you think. Feel free to leave us a comment on our SoundCloud or on our web page. Also, Canadian oil, $4.18 a barrel. Yeah, CNBC reported uh, March 30th, $4.18 US for a barrel of oil. And they're saying a pint of beer costs more money than a barrel of oil. And I was thinking, you know, in Canada, you could get two barrels of oil for a pint of beer. So, yeah, I guess that's good news for the miners in the sense that their costs of energy are going through the floor the other side of that however is their ability to sell their copper or zinc has also gone through the floor we'll get into that with metal prices such an interesting time with the metal prices what I like about our commodity sec is we saw there was a problem in commodities about a month before the stock market and so i think there's a lesson to be learned there so commodities has its own story to tell and it's just like bonds has its own story to tell. Say like the bond market is usually thought of as the market that gets it right first. So each asset class kind of has its own story to tell. And so we're going to take a look at what's going on with the metal prices. And we got some very interesting stories coming up. And again, we have that PDAX story. We also have Barrick's 10-year plan. They've updated it. So Mark Bristow, arch strategist, is going to tell us what he has in mind till 2030, we have some M&A. And I, I guess I was sort of surprised to see M&A as the world kind of shuts down economically. But then I thought if you have a healthy balance sheet and you're looking at acquiring more assets as a mining company, A lot of these stocks have gone, you know, these sort of juniors have gone from like 24 cents to 12 cents and had been as low as 8 or 10 cents. Like a lot of them went down 50%. Like the TSX Venture I saw was in the 300s at one point. I assume there's been a bit of a recovery since, but it is intense out there. So the timing is good. If you have money, just like, you know, it's a great time to buy. So... We're going to take a quick look at those stories, a little M&A, and we also have a Bank of America is modeling 2020 nickel demand. And I am just so excited to go through this with you because I want to see Bank of America analysts model 2020 <laughs> nickel demand. It seems like an impossible task. They are paid a lot of money, I'm sure, so they need to produce a model. So I imagine there's going to be a little bit of imagination in this. But let's take a look. Like, Let's examine the narrative that Bank of America, austere institution, is giving us on nickel demand. They may sound quite good. So let's keep an open mind with that. Finally, we have this story from our new uh, senior reporter, Carl A. Williams. Uh, Radius Gold discovers historic silver mine in Mexico. So Radius Gold has rediscovered a silver mine. And that is a pretty cool story. So all that and more is coming up. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Minor. You can find us on Instagram, at the Northern Miner. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host this podcast, and wherever podcasts are available, and now onto the news. And needless to say, coronavirus takes center stage as it does with all of news. Some of these I was looking at the Drudge Report, it's like the entire site is coronavirus. And I have never seen one issue dominate like that. And it is for like days on end. So that's pretty interesting. So coronavirus is center stage as it is in the mining industry. And we have a new report from Amanda Stutt from mining.com. Mine disruptions escalate as virus rips around globe. On a global scale, work is grinding to a halt and operations at mines are being temporarily suspended As majors and minors move to erect measures to protect against the spread of COVID-19, i am seeing reports even yesterday of mines shutting down, and it's like, it feels a little late over here. Uh, At what point do you say, okay, it's time to close shop? I guess this is global, so every situation is different. So, I mean, if you have no coronavirus cases in your whole community, well, maybe you don't need to worry about it, you know, but... It seems a little late in the day, and uh, yeah, I'm seeing they're picking up steam actually uh, recently, but let's continue here with governments from Africa to Latin America issuing lockdown orders, disruptions to operations, and supply chains are affecting the outlook for industrial and precious metals. Most of the majors have now announced halts at gold-copper operations. Japan Sumitomo became the, the latest major diversified miner to temporarily suspend operations, at some of its mines to prevent the spread of coronavirus, the measure, announced March 26th, affects the company's San Cristobal Silver Lead Zinc mine in Bolivia and its Ambitovi Nickel mine in Madagascar as curfews have been imposed in those countries. You know, you really get a sense of the global nature of this story. Bolivia and Madagascar have, are basically issuing the same orders. Uh, Trevally Mining temporarily stopped production at its caribou Zinc-led silver mine in Canada, and we have a whole story on that on northernminer.com. And part of it is the spread of COVID-19. The other part of it, though, is zinc has gotten so low, and we'll take a look at that in the metal section, that it's not really worth it for them to mine right now. Apparently, this was already in the cards before the coronavirus came because of zinc prices. Uh, Glencore on March 26th halted a number of smaller mines due to government restrictions to curb the spread of the coronavirus, but said its larger operations were not materially impacted. I don't know if they have robots working there or what. I guess, you know, maybe it's if you're going to keep the grocery store open, maybe you can keep the mines open, take everybody's temperature. But I think this has been the real issue uh, with this coronavirus thing from a business perspective. You could argue the reason the response was so slow is because nobody wants to stop their business. And it's totally understandable. But again, this is where the values thing makes it a little easier to make these decisions because, and I think the hardest one are these grocery stores. I mean, what do you do? You need people at the grocery store. I saw the Daily Mail was calling them heroes, and I thought that was totally appropriate. These people are heroes, and a lot of them are just trying to pay their rent. So yeah, I I think we really have to do all we can to protect them and everybody, and but I don't know if a big copper mine is as necessary as essential, but nevertheless, Glencore said its larger operations have not been materially impacted. McEwen Mining also reported on March 26th that it will also be suspending production at its Black Fox mine in Ontario and Gold Bar in Nevada. On March 25th, Cadelco of Chile said it will temporarily suspend construction on some projects. Fidelco said 15-day uh, suspension applied to remaining work being carried out to make Chinqua Camata, an underground mine, and projects at an early stage at Rajo Inca and Trapaso Andina. 15-day suspension. I'm not sure that's going to cut it, but maybe it's just to reshape how they do business so that maybe if you do temperature checks. I, again, it's a very difficult situation. So Bani still water. Now it's March 25th. It had begun implementing measures to place its South African gold and PGM operations under temporary care and maintenance in accordance with their nationwide lockdown for 21 days. Miners in Ecuador are temporarily halting all activity in the country following the government's call to stay home. Anglo Gold Ashanti on March 24th said it will temporarily suspend production from its South Africa operations for three weeks. Oceana Gold on March 24th said its Waihee gold operation in the North Island of New Zealand will go on temporary care and maintenance for four weeks. In response to measures put in place by the New Zealand government, Yamana Gold said it will scale back the Canadian Malarctic mine, which is Canada's largest gold mine. Rio Tinto said its Richards Bay minerals in South Africa will halt production by midnight March 26th. The company will put furnaces on care and maintenance. They will also slow activities at aluminum assets in Canada, valet, and it just goes on and on. So South America is shutting down Anglo American said it will slow the building of a U.S. five billion dollar Calaveco project in Peru, and is going to scale down operations at Los Broncos copper mine in Chile. Now it, it just keeps going on. Tech, Codelco, BHP, Freeport-McMoRan, Antofagasta. I could spend another five minutes reading other projects that are shut down. Check it out on northernminer.com. It's an excellent article. Mine disruptions escalate as virus rips around globe. So let's put this in perspective of all the stimulus that's going around though. So they're printing all this money. Assuming we get through this, which I think is a fair assumption, even in a worst case scenario, there will be, you know, we're going to survive this. It's a matter of how bad is this going to be. On the other side of this, though, you are seeing a lot of supply come off the market and you're seeing trillions of dollars being distributed into the economy. So if you have a long-term perspective, it starts to get pretty interesting. One must always be aware of investing on fundamentals. And let me just say here, I have no expertise in this domain. I am a merely uh, you know, editor and commentator, but you look at all that Just for perspective, and it gets kind of interesting what you could potentially see happen here. So, again, and I think that all depends on how long things stay offline and how much money they keep distributing. So, that is our opener. So, coronavirus is front and center. Let's take a look at our PDAC story here. PDAC tallies three confirmed COVID 19 cases, and this is by Trish Saywell. As we mentioned earlier, as the science continues to evolve around the transmission of the deadly coronavirus, the 23,000 people who attended the PEDAC convention in Toronto can only watch and wait. PDAC confirmed the first case of infection on March 11th, stating that an attendee had tested positive for the virus after returning to his home in Sudbury. That was actually one of the bigger, earlier cases that got a lot of attention. The convention's organizers reported that the individual had attended the trade show on March 1st, to 3rd, including the Ontario Premier's press conference on the trade show floor on March 2nd and a networking luncheon for students and the industry on March 3rd. PDAC said it was possible the Sudbury man had acquired the infection at the event and that he had also attended three smaller evening events. PEDAC has been in contact with the organizers of those events and Toronto Public Health will be following up with them directly, they said in a statement. However, the advice remains the same. The risk is low, and persons are advised to self monitor. Then, on march nineteenth, the industry heard of another case of an infection at the conference. Troilus Gold CEO Justin Reed confirmed that an attendee at its PDAC breakfast reception on March 3rd had tested positive for COVID-19. The man was reported to be in serious but stable condition in the United Kingdom. Separately, when contacted by the Northern Miner on March 24th, Plateau Energy Metals confirmed that one of its staff that had attended the conference tested positive for the virus on March 22nd. Quote, unfortunately, a member of our team in Lima is presently in the hospital, the company said by email. He received a positive diagnosis for COVID-19 on Sunday, March 22nd, after going to the hospital on March 21st. It is worth noting that this member of our team was tested for COVID-19 in Lima on March 14th, 2020, and that test came back negative. I guess the guy was feeling sick for quite a while there. Outreach to notify anyone that had been in contact with the person in Lima has been undertaken And as an extra precaution, we have notified PDAC. No other members from our team that attended PDAC have presented with the virus. And so PDAC issued another statement on March 23rd. Quote, since our last communication with you, we have been informed by the Toronto Public Health that two PDAC attendees from Toronto tested positive for COVID-19. These are in addition to the initial case from Sudbury, Ontario. As with the initial case... It was confirmed that these individuals were not infectious during the convention. As with the initial case, it was confirmed that these individuals were not infectious during the convention. However, it is possible they acquired the virus while participating. I don't know how you can confirm that. How do you confirm that these individuals were not infectious during the convention? I don't know what test you do. That confirms that. And then they're saying, however it is possible, they acquired the virus while participating. Yeah, so I'm not sure what to make of those last two lines there. Um, Yeah. Let's just repeat that one more time. Let's just unpack that. Since our last communication with you, we have been informed by Toronto Public Health that two PDAC attendees from Toronto tested positive positive. For COVID-19. These are in addition to the initial case from Sudbury, Ontario. As with the initial case, it was confirmed that these individuals were not infectious during the convention. However, it is possible they acquired the virus while participating. So if they acquired the virus while participating, that would mean that someone was infectious at the convention. However, according to PDAC, they are saying that they have confirmed that these individuals were not infectious during the convention. So that's the PDAC response. Let's see if there's more to be heard here. Uh, Turning to other mining news, non-coronavirus related, for the most part, we have a Barrick update of their 10-year plan. Interesting timing. Maybe that was all just in the schedule. Barrick Gold has unveiled a 10-year gold production plan in which it aims to maintain production levels of approximately 5 million ounces of gold per year between 2020 and 2029. You know what I like about Mark Bristow is he's a very clear thinker. Okay, we're going to do 5 million ounces of gold per year for the next 10 years. Okay, I can, everybody in the company can understand that right away. The plan is based on its current operating asset portfolio, as well as sustaining projects in progress and implementing exploration and mineral resource management initiatives. It does not include additional asset optimization, further exploration growth, new project initiatives, and divestitures. So I guess they don't want to put a top on that, but they're saying this is the plan, 5 million ounces. And you see how global Barrick's operation is. Barrick says 2.5 million ounces of gold per year will come from its North American mines, 1 million ounces of gold per year from Latin America and the Asia Pacific, and 1.5 million ounces per year from Africa and the Middle East. That is a global mining company. Barrick's North American projects include three of the company's Tier 1 assets that are 61.5% owned and operated by the company, Carlin Cortez and Turquoise Ridge, located in the Nevada Gold Mines Complex, the single largest gold mining complex in the world. So yeah, Barrick and Newmont are joint venture partners there. And the company's other North American projects, Hemlo in Ontario, Canada, is being modernized and refocused to ensure its continued viability, Barrick said. They also said they intend to extend the mine life of its Vladero gold mine in Argentina and Pueblo Viejo mine in the Dominican Republic. The work we did in 2019 has equipped us well to take Barrick to the next level. Bristow said in a press release on March 26, We stand on the strong foundation of our enormous organic growth potential, which will support a positive production profile and a very robust business capable of generating a substantial cash flow for at least the next decade. There are also opportunities for growth outside our current ambit which we continue to explore. And finally here, uh, Barrick has budgeted two hundred and ten million to $230 million for exploration in 2020, in a small amount. And we have a commentary from Kerry Smith of Hay- Haywood Securities, who we often quote. Kerry Smith says, Barrick will generate significant free cash flow before working capital changes, averaging about $2 billion per year for the next five years at our long-term gold price of $1,475 per ounce gold. With a strong balance sheet, globally diversified operations, a sightline on 10 years of production at 5 million ounces, and generation of significant free cash flow, Barrick is a go-to name for all gold investors. So at press time, Barrick was trading at $27.13 per share, and Kerry Smith has a $28 to $31 target. And finally here, I'm just going to quickly touch on a couple of headlines. Argonaut Gold to merge with Alio Gold in all share deal. And this is a friendly all share at market merger that will create a larger company with a production base of over 235,000 gold equivalent ounces this year. So that is Argonaut and Alio Gold joining forces. And Seabridge is acquiring the Three Aces Gold Project in the Yukon. And that is from Golden Predator Mining. Interesting name. And Golden Predator is getting 300,000 Seabridge shares and an immediate cash payment of $263,000 as reimbursement for project expenses. So Seabridge Gold taking over the Three Aces Gold Project in Southeastern Yukon. So you can read more about those stories in detail on the northernminer.com. And finally, I just want to touch on this nickel story. I'm going to have to save the silver mine in Mexico for another episode here. The Bank of America forecasts global nickel demand could drop by 2.8% year-on-year in 2020, which could result in a nickel surplus of nearly 150,000 tons. Well, it looks like global nickel demand is only going to be down 2.8% in 2020. That sounds pretty optimistic. Um, Nickel demand has had a comparatively weak start to the year, suggesting fundamentals were already handicapped for the current health emergency. The B of A commented in a research note, this was heavily influenced by subdued stainless steel production globally. Beyond headwinds in the Western world, activity has been particularly challenged in China, where steel production declined by 6.3% year-on-year in January, as mills churned out fewer tonnage having oversupplied the market through most of 2019. Indeed, stainless steel inventories in Wuxi and Foshan have risen persistently of late. But then the bank notes that there is strong anecdotal evidence that stainless steel production could have declined by 20% sequentially over the lockdown after China's Lunar New Year, although this was still not sufficient to prevent further increases in steel stocks to record levels. B said it was encouraging that miners have been reacting to margin pressures, pointing to care and maintenance measures taken by Valet at Voises Bay and Glencore at Reglan as examples. The most meaningful supply overhang on the nickel market this year is set to be concentrated in the first half of 2020 on the demand weakness in China and the Western world, it concluded. Well, who knows? I mean, maybe 2.8% is accurate. I am definitely not an expert on these people do it for a living and they do it for the Bank of America and I'm sure they're paid very handsomely. So they say 2.8% compared to last year. Demand will drop by 2.8%. So that's the latest news from the northernminer.com and now let's turn to metal prices. metal prices these prices are brought to you by infomine.com and if you'd ever like to see them for yourself simply type infomine and metal prices into google and it will be your first result and on march 31st gold is trading at $1,599.89 per ounce and that is $18 higher than last week's quote Silver is trading at $13.91 per ounce. That is $0.02 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $721.51. That is $45 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,330 per ounce. And that is $500 higher than last week's quote. So palladium has really had quite the ride here. If I look at our last six quotes, it was twenty six sixty six weeks ago, then it was twenty-five thirty-one, then it was twenty-five twelve, so it sort of stayed in around the twenty-five twenty-six, and then it precipitously dropped to fifteen hundred and ninety-three, so almost a thousand dollar drop, and then it went back up to one thousand eight hundred and thirty, so up two or three hundred bucks. And now it's up $500 to $2,330.28. So palladium seems to be tracking with the global economy, which makes sense considering how important palladium is for, I think, these catalytic converters. Jeffrey Christian was mentioning this platinum and palladium, how important they are for keeping the air clean. And also Robert Friedland was saying this. And, you know, when it comes to health, as we're all learning, people will pay up for health and That's what's going on with platinum and palladium. On March 27th, copper is at $2.17. That is $0.03 lower than last week's quote. Aluminum is at $0.68 per pound. That is $0.04 lower. Lead is at $0.77 per pound, $0.01 higher. Nickel is all the way down at $5.09 per pound. That is $0.07 lower than last week. Tin is also $0.07 lower at $6.51. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.38 per pound, and zinc continues to fall one penny lower this week to $0.84 cents per pound, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Joe Offsenek, president and CEO of Predium Resources, and he gives a keynote presentation at the PDAC conference in early March. It's a third part of our three-part series, and Ofsenek tells the story of the Bruce Jack mine, really from concept to completion, and has good advice for miners along the way, such as beware of selling your NSR too quickly, because you don't want to start giving a royalty before you know what's in there. So all sorts of good stuff. I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you on the other side.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here today to tell you about Bruce Jack. And it's really been a pleasure and a privilege to be part of the Predium and Bruce Jack team these last 10 years. As you can see, I will be making forward-looking statements through this presentation. So Bruce Jack's Valley of the Kings deposit was discovered in August of 2009. Less than eight years later, July 2017, achieve commercial production. This morning I'm going to run you through some of the history and milestones surrounding Bruce Jack and then I'm going to finish up with a look to the future. Bruce Jack's located in the heart of the Golden Triangle in northwest British Columbia. It's a prolific mining area. Mining's been there over hundred years and it's currently one of the hotter areas where you can go for mineral exploration. Zooming in on Bruce Jack, if you take a look at the right-hand side of the slide. That large blue shaded area is an outline of our mineral claims. Over 122,000 hectares, that's over 1,200 square kilometers of mineral claims and leases in the heart of the Golden Triangle. Bruce Jack's located on the western edge of the claims. It's comprised of the Valley of the Kings and the West Zone, and it's about 65 kilometers north of the town of Stewart in northwest B.C. That white line you see running through our claim route, nominally east to west, That's our 75-kilometer-long access road, which we completed in January of 2013, and it includes a 12-kilometer stretch of ice road up over the Nipple Glacier as you get into the mine site. The blue dotted line heading from Bruce Jack down to the south is uh, the route of our 57-kilometer-long transmission line, and it ties us into the BC Hydro Power Grid in BC. Prospecting around Bruce Jack has been going on for quite a ways, but it wasn't until the 1980s, When New Hawk gold mines discovered the West Zone, that things really started to heat up. New Hawk quickly opened up the underground and drilled off the West Zone, had it permitted to go into production in 1993. Now, to give you some perspective on changes in permitting, when New Hawk permitted the West Zone back in in the early 90s, we have their submission. It fills less than a 2-inch binder. You jump ahead to late 2013, when we permitted Bruce Jack our submission filled 30 four-inch binders. So it just goes to show you the increased rigor for environmental and social review that's now a necessary part of the permitting process. In 1999, Silver Standard acquired Newhawk Gold Mines. Silver Standard's now known as SSR Mining and my former employer. Purchase price for Newhawk was roughly $3 million, and Newhawk had $3 million in the bank, owned the Snowfield property, and it owned a 60% interest in the Bruce Jack property. Bruce Jack at the time was comprised of about 3,000 hectares and had the West Zone and a number of exploration prospects on the land. In 2000, Silver Standard acquired the remaining 40% interest in Bruce Jack, purchased it from Black Hawk Mining, $125,000 and a 1.2% NSR. So there's a lesson to be learned here as we had that question in the, to Mark about streams and royalties. If you jump ahead to 2013, 13 years later, Franco Nevada purchased that royalty for $45 US dollars. It just goes to show you, you don't want to be selling a stream or a royalty too soon before you've actually drilled off your resource and your deposit. One more thing on this slide, if you take a look in the upper right-hand corner, that's Ken Konkin. He's a legend in the Golden Triangle. Ken coined the name Valley of the Kings for our deposit. And he's currently running the uh, program north of us for Tudor Gold Mines. So in 2006, with gold prices starting to move up, we turned our attention to the Snowfield property and started to drill it off. It was a large, low-grade porphyry deposit copper gold. By 2009, Snowfield was pretty much drilled off, and we turned our attention to the Bruce Jack project down to the south. And we thought we'd replicate the process in drilling off a large, low-grade bulk tonnage deposit. In August of 2009, Ken McNaughton, our Vice President of Exploration at Silver Standard, and now Chief Exploration Officer at Predium, received a phone call from ALS, our assay lab. ALS advised that one of our samples was over limits and recommended going straight to a concentrate assay for samples assaying over 10,000 grams per tonne gold. So that was the discovery of the Valley of the Kings. Now, to think... That 1.5-meter intersection in hole SU-12, which graded close to 17,000 grams per ton gold, was logged as polished pyrite. So we're getting into 2010. Silver Standard wanted to remain focused on staying a silver company. So the decision was made to sell Snowfield and Bruce Jack. In mid-2010, we saw the success that Goldcorp had in selling their Escobal project to Tahoe Resources. We liked the structure of that transaction, so we thought we'd copy it. We got in touch with our former CEO, Bob Quartermain, and that set the wheels in motion for the IPO of Predium. Predium IPO'd on December 21, 2010, raising over $283 million, one of the largest IPOs on the TSX that year, and then purchased... of Snowfield and Bruce Jack. Immediately following the closing, Ken McNaught and I moved from Silver Standard over to Predium, and we were joined by a number of other members of the Silver Standard team to form the core group at Predium to advance it to production. With us uh, today still, we have Michelle Romero, who's our Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability, Max Holtby, our Director of Permitting, Tom Yip, our CFO, Ken Conkinson came across to drill off the Valley of the Kings, And he was joined by Joel Ashburner, who's now our chief mine exploration geologist up at Bruce Jack. In 2011, 2012, our focus was on drilling off the Valley of the Kings. So we had eight drills turning in 2011, nine drills turning in 2012, all helicopter supported. So quite a feat by our exploration team on the logistics side. So here we have the greatest hits from our exploration program. Our discovery hole, SU-12, comes in at number eight on the hit parade. Number one top in the charts is whole VU-722 of over 42,000 grams per tonne gold over half a meter. With over 200,000 meters of drilling completed by the end of 2012, we turned our attention to taking a bulk sample. Now, in British Columbia, under the mining regulations, you're allowed to take one bulk sample every five years of 10,000 tons. So to make sure that we made the most of this one-in-five-year opportunity and to make sure that nothing could or would go wrong, we hired not one, but two independent qualified persons. What could possibly go wrong? But that's a whole other story. So in the end, the bulk sample was a success, and we turned our attention to permitting. However, before I get into permitting, I would like to say the communities of Northwest BC and the people of Northwest BC have been a part of the story of Bruce Jackson through the really early days, and we really have appreciated their sport through the years. Running through a few slides here, in the upper left-hand corner, you can see Aldea Lavallee, our Community Relations Director, headed underground with a team from the Nishka Nation. In the lower left-hand slide, uh, corner of the slide, you can see the signing of a cooperations agreement. So on your left, we have Chief Kwok of the Iskut First Nation, and on your right, Chief McLean of the Taltan First Nation. In the lower right-hand part of the slide, we held a number of open houses throughout the Northwest BC as part of our permitting process, as soon as we filed our permits, and then again before the permits were issued. And in the upper right, we have a number of representatives of the various groups in Northwest BC, as well as some personnel from Pretium. So we understand that we're an integral part of the long-term economic prosperity for Northwest BC. So we worked together with all the groups in Northwest B.C. to address the challenges and share the benefits from Bruce Jack. Getting into permitting, we filed our permits for the Bruce Jack mine in late 2013 and early 2014. Less than a year and a half later, we received our environmental assessment certificate from the province of British Columbia. So it just goes to show you, if you have the right team with the right attitude, you can get things done in British Columbia. The feds followed suit with their permitting, the permits in late uh, five months later, and by September of 2015 we were ready to break ground. However, you know you can't build a mine without capital, and as you also know, 2015 was not a prime year for raising mineral exploration or mine development funds from the traditional sources. So we turned to private equity, and they came through with a construction financing package. It included a capped callable precious metal stream, as well as a repurchasable offtake agreement. We believe that capped callable precious metal stream was a first for the mining industry, and it definitely did not make us any friends with the streamers when we announced this agreement. So turning to construction, here we'll give you just a bit of a layout, feel for the land. So September 2015, we kicked off construction. This is a view of the Bruce Jack mine site looking to the east. You can see Bruce Jack Lake in the distance. The other thing you can note, is a tight space, and there's not a lot of laydown, so it really forces you to be on your toes during construction. The other thing about Bruce Jack is you're always racing against winter. Not that cold, but a lot of snow. So here we are, September 2015, and we're racing against time to get the crush in for our permanent camp pad. We had to get that crush in and compacted before the snow came or we'd lose our schedule. So right to the left of it, you can see our mill pad. We haven't started the bulk earthworks yet, but they'll be coming. On the left-hand side of the slide, those blue units, that's five megawatts of diesel power for construction. And on the lower left-hand side of the slide, that cement foundation, that's the foundation for our maintenance shop for our underground fleet. So jumping ahead to March, we got our fill-in before the snow came, we stayed on schedule. And sort of the center right of the slide, you can see where the camp pad is. We worked on uh, getting the bulk earthworks done through the winter, put the foundations in, and as you can see just to the left of there, you've got the bulk earthworks bringing the mill pad down to grade. Jumping ahead to May, for the permanent camp, we put the foundations in, we put a steel grid on it, and then we had a camp built and fabricated in Edmonton. So 162 prefab units, fabricated in Edmonton, trucked to site up over the nipple Glacier and into the mine. They were picked up by that 230-ton crane you see in the photo, and it dropped in place like Lego. You can see the camp, all the modules are in. They went in about a month, and then the roofs are starting to go on. They were hand-built. And then just to the right of there on the shores of Bruce Jack Lake, you can just make out that we're starting to stand some steel for the mill building. Here we are July, 2016. Roofs are going up on the permanent camp, and we're really starting to make some good progress with that steel for the mill building. Jumping ahead to October, Fortunately, in 2016, snow came late, so we're still working to get the roof on and the cladding on the mill building before snow comes. Here we are in November, winter's here, snow's on the ground, but we have the roof on the mill building and the cladding, and that allowed us to start fitting out the mill building through the winter of 2016 into 17. Just to the right of the mill building, you can see our camp. It's up operational and just in time. Once we started fitting out the mill building, we had a minimum 1,000 people on site, working to get that mine built day-to-day through the rest of construction. Let's take a quick look at the transmission line. On the right-hand side of the slide, you can see the route of the transmission line, 57 kilometers long, tying into the Long Lake Hydroelectric Project down in the south, where we access the BC Hydro Power Grid. Construction of the transmission line started in April of 2016, and by September of 2016, the end of September, All 137 towers for that transmission line were standing. Crews strung cable through the fall and winter of 2016 into 17, and by March 31, 2017, the transmission line was energized. Now, the transmission line was a project unto itself, and uh, we believe, uh, from what we understand, two of the spans in the transmission line are the longest spans of any transmission lines in North America, both extending over 2 kilometers long as we pass over some glaciers heading into Bruce Jack. So here we are in the spring of 2017, April, mills up, fitted out, still a little bit of construction, but we start commissioning the mill in April. Mid-May, we start wet commissioning the mill. July 1, we achieve commercial production at Bruce Jack. Three, four months ahead of schedule with a total build cost of roughly $827 million American or uh, well over $1.1 billion Canadian. First gold pour, June of 2017, and roughly three years later, we expect to be pouring our one millionth ounce of gold. Operating at Bruce Jack has its challenges. So this is a section view looking through the Valley of the Kings deposit. That's our high grade deposit at at Bruce Jack. The gray lines represent our underground development to date. Yellow represents uh, drill intercepts of one to three grams per ton gold. Red represents drill intercepts of five to 20 grams per ton gold and you can just make out some magenta in there, that represents greater than 20 grams per tonne gold. So the challenge at Bruce Jack is wrapping a mine plan around this mineralization, so you minimize the amount of yellow, maximize the amount of red and magenta, so you can try to minimize the variability of your production. Production is variable. And so, to give you a feel for that variability, here's our gold production for 2019. On the left hand y axis, gold ounces produced. On the x axis, 2019. So, you can see that over the course of 2019, gold production ranged from, from a couple of hundred ounces in a day to well over 3,500 ounces in a day. On average, we produce over 970 ounces per day through the course of 2019. Looking at this on a monthly basis, this is production for the last 24 months, 2018, 2019. You can see the one constant is variability. Now, despite all this variability, Bruce Jack has always been profitable and generated positive cash flow. In fact, Bruce Jack's somewhat of an anomaly in the gold mining world. When we achieved commercial production back on July 1st, 2017, we had $12 in working capital. But we didn't issue equity. We put our head down and went to work mining. And over the next 10 quarters, we generated over $500 million in cash flow. And we put that cash flow to good use. We repurchased 100% of our capped, callable precious metal stream, for $237 million. We repurchased the off-take agreement for $82 million. And that cash flow allowed us to refinance our construction credit facility with a syndicated bank debt facility for US $480 million in late 2018. Over the course of 2019, we paid down close to $100 million of that bank debt facility. Here we have some photos of our mill and, and mine at Bruce Jack in the top. We've got some photos inside the mill. On the right, you can see a photo of our bulk loading uh, concentrate facility we installed last year, all designed and installed in-house. Everyone who visits Bruce Jack agrees. It's a world-class mine, and it's operated by a world-class team. Now, in addition to variability, weather is also a challenge at Bruce Jack. Climate-wise, The temperature at Bruce Jack isn't that much different than Toronto, but we get a fair bit more snow. Last I checked a couple weeks ago, we were at over 55 feet of snow, and we still had a fair bit of winter ahead of us. In some of those photos, on the lower left-hand side of the slide, you can see our mill building, with the blue roof. There's our mill building. You can see the blue roof on the mill building, lower left. On the right, you can see why that you can see the blue roof on the left. We get crews up on that roof whenever it's safe to shovel off the snow. And so if anybody ever has any questions or thoughts about building a mine in a heavy snow area, get in touch with us before you start building your mill because um, a lot of design changes uh, would be beneficial for us. Turning to safety. Safety is our priority at Bruce Jack. In just our second full year of mining operations, 2019, we had zero lost time incidents, and we received the Mine Safety Award for large underground mines from the Ministry of Mines in British Columbia. Looking at ESG, Bruce Jack was designed to minimize its impact on the environment, from its very small footprint to its energy efficiency. Per ounce of gold produced, we used just over a thousand kilojoules of energy. That's less than 35 kilojoules per gram of gold produced. That's way down at the low end for gold miners. Greenhouse gas emissions, we had less than 18,000 tons of emissions in 2018. Again, that's at the very low end for gold miners. On water, we have a focus on water at Bruce Jack. We have a state-of-the-art water treatment facility. We treat all water that comes in contact with our surface operations and from the underground, before discharge back into the environment. And our water usage, 4.3 cubic meters per ounce of gold produced again, is at the low end for gold miners. One question we often get asked, what about your tailings dam? We don't have a tailings dam. Roughly half our tailings are mixed with binder and pumped back underground as paste to fill the stokes we've mined out. The other 50% of our tailings are pumped into Bruce Jack Lake. It's 85 meters deep, and over the life of the mine, we expect to fill the bottom 30 to 40 meters of Bruce Jack Lake. There are no fish in Bruce Jack Lake, and in fact, no fish for roughly 20 kilometers downstream. We've had a local hiring policy at Bruce Jack since the early days of exploration. As a result, over 50% of our workforce is from northwest British Columbia, and we continue to work with employment coordinators in the local communities to make sure opportunities are available for local residents. So here we have a section view through portion of our Bruce Jack Mine property looking to the north. On the left-hand side of the screen, you can see the Valley of the Kings. In the center of the screen, you can see our Flow Dome Zone. We discovered the Flow Dome Zone as part of a grassroots exploration program back in 2015. We drilled six holes into the Flow Dome Zone All of them intersected Valley of the Kings-style mineralization. In fact, all of the holes we've drilled from the Valley of the Kings outside the existing resource envelope have intersected Valley of the Kings-style mineralization. So you can see why we expect to be mining at Bruce Jack and the Valley of the Kings for a long, long time to come. Stepping back, here we have an aerial photo of the Bruce Jack mine property with our snowfield property you can see up to the north. Valley of the Kings is outlined in gold. And around it, you have a number of other zones, mineralized zones that have been discovered on the property. Some of them have been drilled, outlined in light blue. The more we mine at the Valley of the Kings, the more we get to understand the mineralization and the geology, the more we believe that each one of those other zones has potential to host Valley of the Kings-style mineralization. And all of them are within a short haul of our existing mill at Bruce Jack. Stepping even further back, this is a map of our 122,000 hectares of claims, over 1,200 square kilometers. You can see the Bruce Jack mine off on the left center of of the slide. And you can see a number of gold dots representing mineralized zones our grassroots exploration has discovered to date. The most joy to dates come at the A6 zone, which you can see at the top of the slide in the center. A6 sits in exactly the same rock package as Sk Creek, which is roughly 20 kilometers away, and in its day was Canada's highest-grade gold mine. We managed to get a few holes into A6 last summer. One of them intersected mineralization similar to SK Creek, VMS mineralization, grading over 2,800 grams per tonne silver and 1.8% copper over 1.5 meters. It's very early days. We're going to be back drilling at A6 this summer, but we believe A6 has excellent potential to be the next mine on our existing claims. As part of our exploration and learning about Bruce Jack and the area around us, we sponsored a number of academic studies to learn more about the mineralization and geology at Bruce Jack. We've also brought in a number of geology guru- gurus to help us out at Bruce Jack. As part of our grassroots exploration, we've used traditional uh, exploration techniques, and we've also used the latest and greatest state-of-the-art techniques, all with the intent of putting things together together so that we can continue to understand the region and our big claim package, so we can focus on discovery of another mine on our claims. So, in summary, Bruce Jack is a Tier 1 mine, and it's located in Tier 1 jurisdiction.
0: Sounds like they want to find another mine. So there's Pretium, an interesting Canadian mining story, and like any good story, has a little controversy. Again, Obsenex sort of glossed over it a little bit there, but uh, maybe the point was more about a big Canadian success story than getting into the nuts and bolts of production outlooks and whatnot. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was some exciting interviews coming up. We're going to interview some of the staff, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So thanks once again for joining us. Until next week, take care.